0: Now that New York Governor Kathy Hochul has delivered her State of the State message with all of its ambitious proposals, it's time to figure out how much they will cost taxpayers. She'll have to do that in her proposed state budget, which is due by the end of the month. But as the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, the spending plan is being forged at a time of economic uncertainty.
1: Among Hochul's plans for the 2023 session is a program that aims to build 800,000 more housing units in the next decade and jumpstarting the failing mental health system with a large cash infusion. And I'm proud to announce to accomplish this goal, we are prepared to invest $1 billion making critical policy changes to fully meet the mental health needs of our people. It's about time. Let's get it done. Hochul also intends to keep her pledge to increase spending on schools by 13 percent, or $2.7 billion. That money would fully fund foundation aid for schools by the next school year. It would fulfill a court order issued over a decade ago. And she proposes expanding some Medicaid programs for preventive health and for people with disabilities. Andrew Ryan heads the Citizens Budget Commission, a nearly century-old budget watchdog group. He says while the governor's goals are laudable, he has concerns about the potential price tag.
2: And there are some good proposals here, a long menu of proposals, but of course we have to wait till the executive budget to get the bill.
1: He says there are some positive signs that show the governor is watching the bottom line. Her housing plan, which relies on construction largely financed by real estate developers, does not come with a big cost. And, could help bring back middle and working class people to the state. The governor's also pledging not to increase taxes this year, despite calls from some in the left of the Democratic Party to do so. She says that would just make problems worse if there's an economic downturn, which many experts believe will occur. A majority of economists are predicting a recession, and that's one of the reasons it's clear to me why we will not be raising income taxes this year. Ryan says Hochul is wise to resist raising taxes. He'd like to see her go one step further and not renew a temporary income tax surcharge on the wealthy when it sunsets in two years. He says that could help prevent wealthier people from leaving the state and attract other higher income people to live in New York.
2: We need to keep our wealthy people because they pay disproportionate taxes that fund schools and transportation and, and all that, they also often are business leaders and bus- job creators. That's a very good thing.
1: Ryan says preventing taxes from rising could also help slow the state's out-migration of people to other states. New York state's finances are in relatively good shape going into 2023, thanks to recent federal COVID relief packages and better-than-expected tax and other revenue collections. Spending, though, grew 12 percent over the previous years, and that's a big jump compared to budgets in the last decade. If that spending continues at the current rate, a fiscal cliff is looming. If nothing's done, the state would face a six billion dollar budget cap by 2027. Hochul spoke about her concerns for the future last December. I have to anticipate worst case scenarios with respect to the economy. I just have to And that's why we'll approach our budgeting with that frame. The governor already plans to increase the state's Rainy Day Fund to $20 billion in the next two years. But the Citizens Budget Commission and other fiscal experts say more than twice that amount is needed to offset the effects of a potential recession. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
0: Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. As part of her State of the State address, New York Governor Kathy Hochul called for tuition increases for both the SUNY and CUNY systems. The Democrat says the annual hikes tied to the lower of the higher education price index, or 3% will help build revenue and allow the systems to evolve. Hochul also wants to boost enrollment at the state's public colleges and universities. It all comes as a new SUNY chancellor takes over the sprawling system. John King is the former state education commissioner and a former U.S. education secretary. He spoke with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok this week.
3: One of the things we're working on is trying to get that message out to high school students, but also to working adults who might need mm. additional skills in order to advance in their careers. Uh, we've seen a big uptick in applications already right? this year. Yeah, and I think that's that's an indicator that some of our strategies to more broadly publicize the great opportunities at SUNY are working.
4: And what are those strategies besides your yeah. being here, which is yeah. immensely important? <laughs>
3: uh, well, we are... Uh, working with school districts to make sure that we get information out to every student that there's a place for them at their local community college. Uh, we want to make sure that students get an individualized letter that says, there is a place for you, mm-hmm. uh, so that students, particularly first-generation students, who may not realize that Do college you sign option, every one of those letters? Uh, that's the goal, that's the goal, that's the plan. Um, We also wanna make it possible when uh, students are applying for them to apply to multiple schools. We did actually a fee waiver, an application fee waiver in the fall and gave folks the opportunity to apply to multiple schools. We also wanna make it possible for students who don't get into their first choice to get a letter that says, you didn't get into your first choice, but here's another campus within the SUNY system that provides a program that that is similar to your interests that you might want to look at so that a student who, you know, applies to Albany but doesn't get in would get that letter that says, here's an opportunity for you at SUNY Fredonia, or here's an opportunity for you at SUNY Plattsburgh in a a program of study that matches your interests.
4: Yeah. You know, one of the things I've always been very interested in is that we have a wonderful community college system, Uh, and yet um, it, it seems almost deprecated in that we don't talk about it enough. I want to talk about that a little bit.
3: Absolutely. Look, community colleges, I believe, are vital to the success of our economy. Community colleges are the place where many of our low-income students and students of color start. Uh, Community colleges are uh, the place where many of our working adults go uh, to get additional skills. Uh, They're often the gateway to higher education. if you think about Micron coming to Central New York, mm. Onondaga Community College is going to be key to the success of that enterprise. Do they know that? They do, and you know when even when it was announced uh, that Micron was coming to the region, uh, they did the announcement at Onondaga Community College. Um, it's important to um, the state's future that our community colleges prepare. The semiconductor workforce, we need the healthcare workforce that we need um, as we try to take climate action and move away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Community colleges like Hudson Valley are going to be at the center of that effort. So, we have to invest in our community colleges. You know, community colleges in New York are a partnership between the state and the county. Um, we have We have a need to put more resources into faculty in particular at our community colleges. Uh, We have folks who are, many folks who are adjuncts. We need to work to make sure we have more full-time faculty. Uh, We need to make sure that our community colleges have wraparound supports for students child care, help with transportation, the things that will help students, again, not just start but finish.
4: You just mentioned something that I've thought about for a long time as a long-time professor myself, um, and that is the status of the adjunct. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
4: Self-respect is so important in whatever we do. And I just want to ask you whether or not you and your colleagues are doing everything in your power to make sure that people know how valued they are when they are
3: adjunct. Yes. Um, We're trying to send that message at uh, the SUNY system, but look, we have to make sure that folks who are teaching as adjuncts, if they want to be full-time faculty, see a path to doing that. Ah, Um, Like what, for example? Well, look, you know, there are many folks who are choosing an adjunct path because they haven't been able to find that permanent faculty position. Last year, the state put $53 million into uh, new permanent faculty positions, and committed to keep investing that $53 million over the next few years. That's vital, uh, because as we grow a quality faculty, we can grow opportunity for students. That's SUNY Chancellor John King
0: speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics, I'm David Gustina. As part of her policy goals, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, is seeking to invest billions of additional dollars in New York's public school system through Foundation Aid. It's distributed through a formula that takes school district wealth and student needs into consideration with the goal of equally distributing resources for all students. Under HOCO's plan, state schools would see an additional $2.7 billion in foundation aid funding, an increase of about 13 percent, bringing the state's total investment in foundation aid to around $24 billion. To gauge how school districts are reacting to the governor's school funding goals, the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with Bob Schneider, executive director of the New York State School Boards Association.
5: Well, we're thrilled with that number that the governor has put into the state of the state as far as what she's proposing. That represents a 13 percent increase in foundation aid, which is the operational aid, the largest aid category. That is the funding in order for our school districts to run uh, the school system throughout the year. Now, 13 uh, percent is a good jump. It's uh, greater than inflation, and we have to realize that uh, schools have significant increased costs due to this inflation issue. Uh, Just think about uh, busing. You know, we see it at the pump with our own individual cars. Imagine what a fleet of buses costs now to to fuel up and heating rooms and things of that nature. So we see that two things. She is committed to the foundation aid uh, restoration uh, phase in. The third payment was due this year. That's part of that increase. And she's giving us uh, the important increases to support not only the inflation costs, but all the important resources that go into running a school district every day, every month, and every year.
6: And Governor Hochul, in her State of the State address, promised to invest $125 million dollars to expand full day pre-K, saying with that funding, about 95% of the state would have access to universal pre-K for four-year-olds. Do you think that's enough to meet that goal, that dollar figure to meet that 95% goal?
5: We're very happy with that number. It basically doubles what was in the budget last year, and that 95% of uh, students, uh, four-year-olds, that are in, uh, have access to universal uh, pre-K is really important. Uh, you can imagine the foundations are built when the child is very young. They can get into a pre-K system. They can get some maybe reading instructions, some social interaction, and once they get into ki- kindergarten, they hit the, the ground running. And we think it's a... It's a cost savings in the long run because building that foundation early on will hopefully uh, – det- there won't be remediation in the later years in high school when a student who might not have had access to pre-K to get, uh, to get going as far as you know certain skills and learning skills and things of that nature. We might have to invest more costs to get them to ke- get up to speed.
6: Do you know when the expectation would be to meet 100 percent of the state have uh, universal pre-K?
5: No, I do not. And I know that's the goal. Uh, we're getting there. You know, 95 percent is an impressive number at this point. And we are hoping when the legislature puts their budget out and the negotiations start that at least that number uh, stays in the budget.
6: Governor Hochul mentioned she wants to address learning losses that occurred during the pandemic, uh, something we've, we've spoken about, uh, by using $250 million of that foundation aid promise to fund tutoring programs. She said those could be set up by districts in-house or using partnerships. In your mind, is the infrastructure there across the state to roll that sort of system out?
5: I, well, we do have a shortage. That's a very good question. Not only a shortage uh, in teacher workforce uh, in certain areas, we have shortages in bus drivers, uh, health, mental health counselors, things of that nature. But I do think our schools have been creative. They recognize that high-dosage tutoring is an important way to get the students that have been lagging based on the unfortunate results of the pandemic and the learning losses you, you refer to high-dosage High dosage tutoring is really important. And I think schools can lean on retired teachers to come back and help out and have teachers uh, be assigned to one, two, or three students to do this high dosage tutoring, which is different than the tutoring I was accustomed to when I was young. If I had uh, lacking grades, my mother or family member would help me out at home. High dosage tutoring is in the actual school curriculum it's it's during it happens during a year it's part of the teaching program throughout so these students are getting it every every week uh, several times throughout the year so it's really a proven way to catch these students up I know our school districts are very creative as far as coming up with solutions but you can't avoid the fact that there there are staffing shortages in some places so uh, you know but they they can get creative as long as the money's there from the, the state
6: Shifting beyond the state of the state and the budget, the state education department has ordered school districts to remove all Indian mascots and associated Native American imagery by the end of the current school year. Does the state school boards association have any role in that process?
5: We do. Uh, we we are continually working with the state education department on many issues. We meet with them on a monthly basis. But I do want to say one thing, that SED is looking for a commitment by the end of this year as far as removing mascots that are uh, could be offensive to community members or students. Now, right now, we, we estimate 65 school districts in the state have Indian mascots. But, again, they're looking for a commitment and a plan on how they would remove those mascots that have that deleterious effect on students and community members. Um, You know, that – will phase in over time and one thing to remember on the mascot issue this is a law or regulation from SED the state education department that was put into place i think and i'm pretty sure in 2001 a lot of our districts have already made those changes there's 65 left and there are certain circumstances where they might not have to remove the mascot we're working with SED to your point to make sure that they give us more clarity and we can help out our member districts as they go through this process.
6: Yeah. To that point and that 60, those 65 districts that you mentioned, what are you hearing uh, from them, particularly maybe as it pertains to some challenges they're facing, questions they might have as uh, they go through this?
5: You know, and that's why I said we need clarity, uh, greater clarity so we can support these districts. Certain Symbols or mascots that have a Native American uh, name might not be uh, considered off- offensive um, or, you know, impacting, once again, a child or a community member. So clarity is the key. Um we know that uh, we still have some questions we want to ask, uh, but we're we're working with them. I mean, we've seen this play out in the you know professional sports. We saw the Cleveland Guardians and the Washington Commanders as an example. This is an opportunity too, uh, if if there is that commitment you have to make that commitment and you're going to change it could be a great student project to have students and communities come together to work on renaming their mascot and and really it all lines up with the principles of diversity equity and inclusion and we have endorsed that since the beginning there are a lot of different students in the school district system and we want to make sure that they come there they have a comfortable environment and which will allow them to learn and be contributors to our society down the road.
0: That's Bob Schneider, Executive Director of the New York State School Boards Association, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A series of outdoor walks is seeking to educate residents of New York's capital region about natural ecosystems in the winter. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard attended a program in Saratoga County and sent this audio postcard.
2: SARATOGA PLAN'S BOG MEADOW NATURE TRAIL BRINGS VISITORS THROUGH WOODLANDS AND OPEN MARSH ON A TRAIL THAT FOLLOWS A FORMER railbed. ON THIS DAY, STAFF FROM THE WILTON NATURE PRESERVE AND PARK ARE LEADING A HIKE WITH A GROUP OF LOCALS TO TEACH ABOUT OVERWINTERING ANIMALS. AS THE SNOW FALLS, EDUCATION COORDINATOR AND ENVIRONMENTAL EDUCATOR ALLISON PARADIS POINTS TO A BEAVER LODGE, WHAT APPEARS TO BE A LARGE MOUND OF STICKS AND BRANCHES RISING OUT OF THE HALF-FROZEN SWAMP.
7: BEAVERS ARE A REALLY COOL ANIMAL. Their front teeth are kind of like a yellowy color, and that's because of how much iron is in their system. Trees have a lot of iron and since they use trees for food and they also use it to sharpen their front teeth to make structures like this, that's why they're so yellow. Um, and they actually keep growing. So they're like,
2: Paradise, along with fellow environmental educator and Wilton Wildlife Preserve volunteer coordinator Lily Esposito, welcome questions about the flora and fauna during the walk including from me with a beaver-related follow-up. Do you know how many animals will live in one lodge?
7: Um, I think it can vary kind of depending upon their quote-unquote family. Um, this lodge, I would say it's not super big. Um, I don't know, probably like five to seven, Yeah. I would definitely. say. Um, so you'll have like your little baby beavers and then your mom and dad, and they'll live in that, and then, yeah. And this is where they're
8: spending most of their winter. Yeah. So when they build these dams or these lodges, they're incredibly insulated. So when it's cold, they can gather their food in there, that's where they're sleeping, that's where it keeps them warm. Obviously, they have that really thick fur, so they do leave the lodge, they swim underneath the ice, but that's where they're spending most of their time in the winter.
2: Along the way, the instructors point out moss and lichens on trees, discuss the Native American use for a certain kind of mushroom that clings to branches, and describe the difference between feline and canine tracks. Between
7: a canine, so like your foxes, your wolves, your, de- not wolves, coyotes, wolves oh. too, I guess. Sorry, there was a, yeah, an owl. Really? That's yeah. Cool. You
2: see? A large owl with brownish feathers hears the group coming down the trail and flies off in the snow. I didn't get a great look at it, but I'm told it could be a great horned owl or barred owl just two of the native species one might find in this preserve. I ask another question. Esposito is ready with an answer. This area has different habitats. We're in this marshy area, and then there's flatter, drier areas. Does that help attract certain species like owls, or different kinds of owls that like different kinds of areas?
8: Good question. So the mixture of ecosystems is beneficial for a lot of animals owls specifically because owls like to live on edge environments so where two different ecosystems meet so this is a great area for them because they can stay hidden in the forest they can be in the forest during the day and feel protected but they can hunt in the meadow and in the bog because they can see with all of the low shrubbery so owls sparrows um, let's see, tip mice, chickadees, they all like living on that edge ecosystem between the forest and the meadow. So yes, having multiple kinds of ecosystems here definitely benefits the animals.
2: One of the participants bundled up for today's walk is Jack Marchetti.
4: So I've um, studied like biology at college and then my master's was in ecology, so I'm looking to like start a career in that sort of field. So. Through these sorts of walks and volunteering, I'm hoping to make connections and sort of, um, you know, jumpstart a career in that sort of field.
2: Michaela McMaster, another participant, has another reason for venturing out in the snow.
7: I just feel like nature is so healing and grounding that being out here and learning more about it helps not only my mind, but like allows me to educate others. About nature.
2: The trail on the outskirts of Saratoga Springs near the Wilton Town line sits not far from a stretch of suburban homes. Back at the Trailhead parking lot, Paradise says a goal of the nature walks is to connect people with their local outdoor environments.
7: It's really cool seeing it like week to week Um, and we're trying to promote it as like a weekly walk where new people can come but also promote it as a way for people to come out regularly with us, kind of get that bond with a personal connection with the community and then kind of talk with them about changes that they're seeing. Like it's snowing now but it could be like 50 and sunny next week and it's just kind of a cool thing to talk about change with us workers staff wise but also for the public to have that connection with us as well.
2: Esposito agrees
8: as the volunteer coordinator when i began there was this learning curve of getting to know all of the volunteers because we have a really strong volunteer base. And something that they all said was, we feel like Wilton is our backyard. Like we feel like this is a safe place for us to come and be outside and we know that we're protected. We know the land is protected. We know it's safe to be here. And I think that's a big part of what we do at The Preserve is connecting people to these spaces where they can be outside, feel safe, know that they're having an interaction with nature and that the trails will be maintained and the bathrooms will work. Because I think that's a big issue for people is heading into a new spot. So having things like this, like the Bog Meadow Walk, where we're doing it over and over for a couple weeks, we're hoping to get people comfortable enough on this trail that then they're willing to go explore other trails too.
2: Winter nature walks in partnership with Saratoga Plan and Wilton Wildlife Preserve and Park will continue through February at the Bog Meadow Preserve in Saratoga Springs, Camp Saratoga in Wilton, and Gloege Preserve in Galway. There's a link to more information at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard.
0: That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2302. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.